Welcome to Face to Faith, a regular podcast and column focusing on the faith lives of interesting people. Brought to you by the Chicago Sun-Times and available on iTunes and SoundCloud. This week, my guest is the man behind this music. That was Smokey Norfolk, a Chicago area minister and a huge force in gospel music who recently became an author. I am Bob Hergeth of the Chicago Sun-Times for Face to Faith. We talked this week about music and his beliefs. One of them, there's no sin that's unforgivable. Tell, uh, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, I'm a gospel recording artist and I've been in the music business both as a songwriter and recording artist for almost 20 years now. And I'm also the pastor, senior pastor of a congregation that's both in the western suburbs of Bolingbrook and in the inner city of South Side of Chicago. And a husband, a father, and now for the very first time, an author. So that, that's that's the synopsis. Was this your first book? I thought you had written a couple other books. No, this is my very first book. I'm really, really excited about it because it's the first one. Okay, so well, well, before we get to that, let tell tell us about uh, where you grew up. Your uh, your dad was a minister, right? Yeah, my dad pastored for forty five years, um, and he decided after forty five years he he done it long enough. And uh, I grew up in the in the parsonage, which literally was right next door to the church. So, of course, I'm, I have a great and strong foundation um, in church and ministry and Christianity, and so. Uh, it, it, is inevitable, it was inevitable that I would take some role in ministry, but I certainly didn't think that it would be his role. Right. Now he's retired, and I'm his pastor. He and my mother, they, they moved. They did the reverse because, I, I like to say it's because of me, but truthfully it's because of the grandkids. <laughs> they moved from the south to the Midwest. So they went from a hotter climate to a colder climate. And they are now here in Chicago, and we have three generations serving in ministry at my church. Okay, and that's uh, in Bolingbrook, right? And and you grew up mostly or totally in Arkansas, is that right? I grew up in Oklahoma and Arkansas. I was born in Little Rock, and uh, my father and mother moved to Oklahoma for a short period of time. So I was there for a short season, and then we moved back to Arkansas when maybe I was 13 years old. And I stayed there until I got married and eventually came to Chicago to go to seminary. But I'm really, really a, a Southerner at heart and in upbringing. Now, I read something uh, that, that not always, you know, you stopped going to church for a while. You didn't think you were going to maybe necessarily go into ministry. You were going to be a singer or what? Explain that process. Well, there was a season when I literally had everything that anybody could ask for as far as musical success or industry success. My recording career had taken off to such a degree. And, and, and it seems like it was instantaneous to a lot of people from the outside. But it really was the culmination of a long period of, of work and a prayer and preparation uh, and then hoping. And then instantly one day, you know, God just turned the tides and the favor fell and I started getting all kinds of accolades and access and uh, it, it just became everything that I dreamt of. But I did not have inner peace. And during that season, during that time, I actually did take, uh, I, I call it a sabbatical, but really it was rebellion. I decided after even all the upbringing and all the exposure and experience that I had in ministry 
and and just basically and, and quite frankly knowing better, I got into a place where I didn't have inner peace to the extent that I stopped going to church. I would go to ministries and I would go to churches and I would be booked to sing and I would be booked to do concerts. But as far as on Sunday morning getting up, going and worshiping myself and really having uh, a close encounter with God and developing and growing in my faith, it, it, I went through a, a season where that wasn't the order of the day. That wasn't something that I did. And I was you know, convicted by it. My mother was definitely one of the ones who helped with that conviction every single Sunday morning, calling me to ask me, am I up? Are you going to church? What are you doing? And so uh, that, was, that was a darker period. I, it was a period ultimately where I just realized now, in hindsight, that I was longing for something. I was missing something out of vacancy and a void. And it was, it, was, it was ultimately because I had not yielded to God. I had not allowed him to do what he needed to do in my life. I was so consumed with what I wanted and what was happening that I missed, I missed my opportunity in that season uh, to really have my lid picked off. Okay, and so is so. It sounds like basically you were singing about God, you know, gospel music, spiritual music, but you weren't you weren't feeling it fully. You weren't fully who you were supposed to be in your mind, right? Well, not necessarily the case. Uh, I, it, it's not that I never had a, a moment where I did not experience the power of God, a move of God, even when I was singing for God. I mean, it was never routine. It was never ritual for me. Um, I'm very passionate and very intense when it comes to my service to him. So that wasn't necessarily the case, but something was missing. It was more of a void. It's like um, in, in, that, in that moment when I was in ministry, when I was singing, when I was ministering, I was completely fulfilled. But when those moments, would, when the cameras would go off, when the lights would dim, there was still something missing and something that I knew I was supposed to do. And that more that more specifically uh, describes what I was experiencing. Gotcha. So so what what changed? Well, what changed was I ultimately you know realized in, in a season of frustration that I needed to seek God and I needed to go back and acknowledge the call that He had on my life and I needed to serve people and that really was the premise behind it. I needed to serve others, not just to minister to them in song, not just do that half of that portion of my gifting and grace, but I really needed to bless them and sow into their lives and teach them uh, who God is and utilize the first call that was on my life. Most people don't know it, but I was called to preach, and I went to seminary long before I became a recording artist. So they feel that now I've walked away from the music business and, you know, I'm now pastoring, and that's the progression, or that's the order of the progression of how things uh, took place, but that it really is the opposite of that. Uh, and that was that season and that revelation, that realization was just, okay, God, yes, I'll do what you asked me to do, even at the expense of me not being able to do all that I think I want to do. And not understanding at the time, I could do both. <laughs> right. And that's exactly what took place. What denomination did you grow up in, and what was it like um, at your father's church? I grew up Methodist. Uh, I grew up in the AME church, and it was a very polished, very high church environment. Um, it was very rich, very structured, very orderly, but it was also, you know, uh, very, uh, I don't know, a lot and grew a lot. I was definitely molded and shaped, you know, as a man, as a minister, uh, as a preacher in that context. Um, but it was, it was, it was also, in, in some regards, at some point, it was frustrating. 
because I was I was allowed by my parents to be very ecumenical and to explore and experience other denominational settings. And as long as they preach the same gospel and as long as they, they honor the same teachings, you know, I was able to participate in their ministry events and their functions, and I had friends over there. And so that many of them were much more passionate about their worship and much more expressive in worship than our denomination was. So I would be frustrated at sometimes at my home denomination because um, they they did not necessarily embrace that, and some some even frowned upon it and made commentary about it. Uh, but my parents, I, I really really thank God for them allowed me to be who God called me to be. They allowed me to experience God in my own unique ways, to be passionate, to be expressive, and having the best of both worlds is, is, is I think one of the greatest gifts and assets that I could have actually gotten from them, mm-hmm. uh, just to be able to experience God the way that I do now. What is your denomination now? Is there is it non-denominational, or is it still AME, or what? No, it's non-denominational, and we're very ecumenical, and I have a melting pot, literally a melting pot of backgrounds, some former Hebraic um, believers, some, uh, some, some people who came out of the Jehovah's Witness, uh, faith, some people who are Catholics and Pentecostals and Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians. Literally, we are a melting pot. And so I, it causes me to have to minister distinctly with those in all of those cultural contexts or those, those uh, contexts in mind. It also causes me to, to really be very mindful of, of the, the fact that I'm ministering to a universal audience who may not have had the same lens and perspective as myself. So it, it makes me work a little harder, but it's so worth it because we get to learn from each other. So how do you? So what is sort of the emphasis, and 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 what do you? What's the essence of what you preach? Say it again. I'm sorry, I didn't understand that question. No, uh, that's okay. Uh, what I said is so tending to this this uh, diverse flock. What is the essence of what you preach? Oh, three things that, that embody my message, and that's both the ministry and music and song and life and business. And that's hope, healing, and empowerment. Uh, I believe the gospel, or I know that the gospel is a message of hope. It is a message of encouragement, forgiveness, redemption, salvation. These are the common things in any denomination uh, that preaches Christ and that preaches the gospel message. Uh, and so that, that is something that I always strive to make sure is a foundation for everything that I do in music and in preaching ministry, and that is to, to provide hope, healing, and empowerment. Um, even in my office, I, I will commonly ask them when they're dealing with the congregation, you know, hey, are, are we, is that hope healing and empowerment? Are we, are we make sure, are we ensuring that we're administering those three graces? And so, uh, even in the essence of my, my preaching, those are three constant components. Right. I do believe, of course, also in majoring in the how. There's a lot of practical application is what I mean by that. There's a lot of pastors, preachers, and even in my tradition, we grew up getting the what. You know, God can make a way. God will do this. God, he will see you through this. He will turn it around. It will work out in your favor. And a lot of times we're left with the question, but how? So I spend a lot of time and energy making sure that I address the how in, in everything that I preach and teach because I want people to know how to apply the Word of God to their own individual lives and circumstances so they, you know, they can have the abundant life that God co-designed for them to How did you start on the music front? Was it from your dad's church that you were in the church choir or the band, or was it just how did it sort of originate? 
Well, I'm, I'm a PK, a pastor's kid, and grew up in the church singing in the children's choir. Um, I, I always had a natural inclination for music, uh, towards music, natural propensity to be able to do music. From the age of three, I was picking out melodies on a little toy piano. By four and five, I was really playing the piano that my, my mother and father had put on the back porch of our house. They were, they were throwing it away from the church, and it just landed on the back porch of our house literally as a stopping point before they gave it away or got rid of it. And uh, I just would go back there and pick out melodies to the extent that one day my mother ran back thinking that somebody was back there with me. Like, who is back there with this little boy? And so it was just me. And, and I've always had a natural desire and passion for music. Uh, I remember going in, I, I know my kids, they laugh at me now and look at me crazy and even have the audacity to ask me, what is that? But I remember going to the public library to check out records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and I, it was all kinds of music that I listened to. Uh, I really appreciate my parents allowing me to be well-rounded in that way. But I remember, you know, songs like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which if you're not old as I am, no, I know that it. is. <laughs> yep. So, you know, so, so it was from that to Stevie Wonder to the DeBarge family to, you know, to Mahalia Jackson, uh, to the Hawkins family, to the Winans family. I mean, I was able to listen to everything and all kinds of music, and really it, it helped to shape uh, my passion, my first, my desire to do music. Okay, and um, you came to Chicago basically um, just for education, right? You were at Garrett, uh, is that right, and uh, Trinity? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, and that's actually why I moved to Chicago was to go to seminary. Okay. And uh, so in terms of, uh, so I interviewed somebody uh, earlier this year and they said gospel music is dying. And I looked at your YouTube um, uh, clicks, you know, on, on uh, you know, I Need You Now, the song, and it was 4.3 million views. So, I mean, is, um, you know, what, what do you think the future of gospel, gospel music is? Well, I don't think gospel music is dying. I think as with everything else in the world, it's changing. Um, it's evolving. It's, 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 you know, it's evolving into something that's different than people are accustomed to. It's evolving into a format that is not necessarily our grandmothers and great grandmothers' format. And I think, in terms, it causes some people to believe that it's a dying, um, that it's something that is actually on its way out. But I really believe that it's evolving, and I think the younger generation they've they've attached themselves to it in a different way, and they're presenting it in a different way, they're looking a different way, and it's the same concept as when I started in the music business, there was a lot of people in our in the previous generation that said, you know, oh my God, you know, from a business standpoint, you know, I can say definitively that things are distinctively different, and it is challenging. I won't say dying, but it is exceptionally challenging because the digital medium has caused us to have to do music and do the industry side a completely different way. But I don't think that it affects the message of the gospel and the, and the, and the masses who desire to hear it presented even through songs. So I don't think it's dying. I think it's evolving. And I do think that eventually it will come back around. And with fashion, it does the same thing. It's cyclical. And it will come back around, and our children and our children's children will think that they found something brand new. And we will say that we did that, you know, back in 2000 and in the 90s. So um, that's my belief about that. Well, why don't you define define what gospel music is to you? What is it? What it, What is it? 
for me, gospel music is presenting the, the, the message of hope, which is the gospel message in, in song, and presenting it in a way that makes it relevant, that makes it valuable and valid for everybody that hears it. Um, it is providing hope through, through song. That's what gospel music is to me. And so with that in mind, I mean, does it matter? I've interviewed people for my podcast. Some people believe the Bible literally, all of it, or most of it. Some people believe it's mostly metaphorical or all metaphorical. Some people, you know, say the New Testament is more literal. You know, I mean, so what's your view in terms of, or does it even matter um, because the message is such um, that, it, you know, whether some of these people existed or not, it doesn't matter, or does it matter, do you think, in terms of, you know, what's, what's literally uh, versus more figuratively true in the Bible? Well, I don't believe it to be a metaphorical book. Let me say that definitively. I think it is the Word of God. It is the inerrant, true uh, Word of God. So that's my that's my belief, um, assuredly. Um, be, but in addition to that, I think that the message and the themes from Old Testament to New Testament are consistent, that there is a thread of Christ that can be found from Genesis through and to Revelation. It is the story. The Bible is the story of Christ. Um, whether you're looking from a metaphorical or a literal standpoint, um, that that's that's to be argued, and that could be you know you could get caught up in the semantics of that. But I really believe that it is a message of salvation, a message of hope and redemption, and you can see threads of Christ from Genesis to Revelation. And I and I also believe that you know it is um, it is a consistent, necessary message that is relevant for all generations. Mm-hmm. And music to you, I mean, is that just something that it's a you know you're good at, or is it you do you feel you're you know this is sort of divinely inspired in your life? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm divinely inspired, and of course, being divinely inspired uh, makes me good at it. You know, and I'm I won't I won't be so I guess foolish. I don't know if that's the appropriate word, but I won't be so naive. I believe that word. I won't be so naive to say that it does not take work because faith without works is dead. You can believe that the power of God has endowed you and, and uh, endowed you the ability to accomplish and do things, but if you're not passionate about it, if you don't practice it, rehearse it, if you don't put forth the effort and the energy into it, you're still not going to be good at it. Right. So I think that it is a little bit of both, that God blessed me with the capacity to learn it, to glean it, to gain it at a very, very young age, unmistakably it had to be God's divine intervention to allow me to do what I did at four and five years old. But I also know that it took a lot of work, a lot of hard work, dedication, commitment, and sacrifice in order to become good at it. So I think I'm good at it because God allows me to be good at it. Okay. And the, the book, I mean, uh, I started reading it. It's, it's HarperCollins is your publisher, right? A big publishing house? Yes, it's a big publishing house. The division is specifically Thomas Nelson but it is a division of HarperCollins. Okay, and it's uh, it's called uh, Take the Lid Off. And um, speaking of literal or figurative, the, the story was that about the rice with your grandma, how which sort of inspired the title. I mean, that that is actually a story from you were growing up, right, that you were cooking on the stove? Absolutely. I was learning to cook rice, and that, you know, that was one of my favorite. It still is my favorite dish. <laughs> but I was learning to cook rice, and my grandmother, my great-grandmother actually, was a phenomenal down-home Southern comfort food cook. She actually owned, she and my grandfather owned a cafe, so it was a major part of our upbringing, of our experience as children. And uh, she decided to teach me how to cook, and especially 
cook my favorite dish. Well, in the process of cooking rice and learning to cook rice, I quickly realized that you do not put a cap or a lid, rather, on the on the top of a pot of boiling rice. It is a massive mess <laughs> in the making, and so everything started spewing out, boiling over the side, and fire started licking up the side of the pot. It was chaos. Chaos in my mind, and I was yelled across the room, Grandmother, Grandmother, what am I supposed to do, Grandmother? What do I, what do I do? And she just simply said, Take the lid off, take the lid off. Mm-hmm. And after I snatched the lid off, everything settled down, simmered down. The process continued, and uh, and it, it finished, and I had the, the phenomenal product on the other side. Well, from that imagery, from that analogy, you know, I have taken the liberty to present it to people in such a way that gives them the opportunity to see. Meantime, we don't even realize we have lids on our lives that we're really almost at our boiling point. Some of us are one issue, one incident, one crisis away from losing everything, snapping, breaking down, and the stresses of life are inevitable because it is just a part of our lives that we will have trials, we have tribulations. So uh, this book for me was my opportunity to, first of all, help people identify whether or not they're at their boiling point, whether or not the pressure has become so overwhelming that they're really about to explode and they don't even know it. And then secondly, uh, to give them practical strategies on how to take the lid off of their lives, to show Mm -hmm. them, listen, these are things that you need to know. These are things you need to do in order to take the lid off. In your book, you talk about God is a God of second chances and third and fourth chances. I mean, how many chances do people get, you think? it's It's actually, you know... I think it's a boundless and endless amount. The scripture says it this way, that God says, I'll take your sins and cast them into a sea of forgetfulness to remember them no more. Well, the truth of the matter is, it also gives us great understanding that God is omniscient. So that means he's all-knowing. He cannot literally, technically forget. So what it ultimately means is that he, he makes a decision not to hold to our charge, place on our account, or even put you know, uh, a measure of true accountability except through grace and through mercy on us for the sins that we commit and the mistakes that we make. He chooses not to hold us, uh, uh, he chooses not to hold them uh, against us. And so I think in, in terms of that, God is, he's so loving, so gracious, so forgiving, so kind, so merciful that he allows us a perpetual amount of mistakes. However, there is a catch. Because some people will take advantage of that. Some people are exploited of that concept. Mm-hmm. And they'll simply say, well, I'll just do it and ask God to forgive me. Well, that's not true repentance. True repentance is saying, God, I'm literally earnestly not capable of doing this by myself. I need your help so that I won't do this. And then God is faithful to forgive us. If you're, if you're faithful to confess your sins to him, he's faithful to forgive yourself. Is, are the, true repentance and true, true confession. Are there so, any... Uh, mm-hmm. it, the answer to your question is uh, seven times, seven times, seven times, seven times, seven. Okay. Are there any sins you think that are unforgivable for God? I don't think there are sins that are unforgivable. I, I don't, I've don't. i never seen in the scriptural text myself personally. I've never found that. Uh, I'm not going to be, you know, the, the consummate theologian here and say that definitively there is no writ anywhere, no text anywhere that says that, but... In my experience, in my all of my my studies and my uh, learning, I don't I don't see anywhere in the scripture that it says there is an unforgivable sin. Um, there are sins that God hates. 
Um, there are sins that God loathes. I think he loathes all sins. Um, there are sins that are identified in unique and specific ways, but I just don't see it that he, he does not forgive a sin. It, it, accordingly, and all of us should say, and all of us should say, thank you, God, for that. <laughs> and I interviewed somebody, um, a, uh, a Lutheran bishop, actually, recently, who said, if hell exists, which he's not sure it does exist, it's probably empty. What do you think about that? I, I, don't, I don't agree with that, theolo- that theological position at all. Um, I believe hell exists. I believe there is a heaven and a hell. And uh, I believe that the Word of God is true, and that what it speaks, including and even in the book of Revelations, it shall be as God has already declared it. So I'm I'm a, I'm a little in uh, not even a little I'm in disagreement with that that particular theological premise. Okay, so there is there's a hell, there's a hell and there's probably a lot of folks down there. Well, I believe that that the unsaved that the lost will spend eternity in hell. I believe what the Bible says. Okay, so who are uh, who are the unsaved and those who have not embraced Christ or or um, could you elaborate? Sure. The Bible says, according to Romans ten nine and ten, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus is raised from the dead, you shall be saved. And so, therein lies my theological premise that um, confessing Christ as your Lord, as your your head, as the Lord of your life, and believing through faith that God raised Him from the dead, these are prerequisites to salvation. Okay. What do you view heaven as like? What do you think it? What do you think it looks like or feels like? I'm sorry, say it again? What, what do you think uh, heaven looks like or feels like? Um, I think there's many pictures that have been painted. I think the scripture gives us a clear picture and understanding. Uh, but the greatest, the greatest, uh, I guess, pictorial image that I have is that the, the woes and the anxiety of this world shall cease, meaning no, no more sickness, walkers, canes. Um, that I like the way that the old people used to say when I was growing up that every day will be Sunday, meaning that the Sabbath will have no end. It will be a day of rest or a season, a period or eternity in my uh, in my understanding of scriptural text, an eternity of rest um, where peace shall abound, where the glory of God resides. Um, that that to me is the most beautiful imagery and picture that the scripture paints of what heaven will be like. Okay. Do you do you ever um, um, doubt the you know have doubts about the existence of God or just or maybe uh, your own calling or what, what's a lot of one of the themes I touch on in this podcast too is asking people just about whether they ever have doubts because it's a very human thing. Well, doubt is a part of building faith. You know, you have moments where you actually and I, I shouldn't say doubt questions are building faith, and I think those questions may. Um, be premised couched or situated in some doubt on occasion, but I really believe that that's a part of building your faith, that you have to ask questions, you have to become inquisitive, you have to discover um, through inquisition more about God. And to me, that's a natural progression of building faith. Okay. Do I personally ever have moments where I doubt God exists? No, I don't. Um, I believe Him to be completely real. Um, I believe I believe God is extraordinarily present in 
every area of our lives in many different ways. Um, and I, I am a firm believer that um, that he exists. Okay. Uh, why do you think music exi- exists? Music, music actually is a, it goes really way back to the, to the uh, Bible's teaching, if you really understand it, that Satan or Lucifer, who we now know as Satan or the devil, was actually an angel whose bodily composition had pipes. So he was a walking instrument, and he was the chief minstrel in heaven. And so I, I believe that he had music serves a purpose. It, it has a place. You can see all throughout the scriptural text where music was used to soothe savage uh, um, circumstances and or to to uh, calm people and to, to get rid of evil spirits. Um, David played the harp before the king so that the king could be settled within himself and trying to place a peace. And I think, you know, in large part, it still has the same effect and same uh, place in our lives that music is a viable part of, of our existence, of our lives, and it communicates messages. It, it ministers and it moves and it, it, it communicates to us in ways that sometimes the verbiage or the words don't, don't even have the opportunity to penetrate. And it's evident even in how you function throughout the course of life. Marketing people have even studied it and figured that it has a valuable, powerful effect at causing people to move and be motivated to do things, you know, that they want them to do. Right. Uh, another another question I ask uh, folks is in terms of religion, because a lot of people delineate between religion and, and and God. But so let me pose it to you: Does the world need more religion or less? I'm sorry. Say that again. Uh, does the world need more religion or less religion? Um, I, I'm honestly, you know, there's so there's several different. <laughs> understandings of religion, you know, there are people who believe that religion is is denominationally based, and according to your denomination, that determines the dictates the religion or your quote-unquote religion, but from a, an, an institutionalization or an institutionalized concept, I would say that we need more relationships. We need more fellowship with God, communion with God. We, we need more practice in the principles of God, which are you know, really couched in who God is, and He is love. And so I don't think we need more religion, which really speaks to the embodiment of ritual. I think we need more relationship. There's a lot of people who are, you know, attendees of service or church, and they go to church, and they participate in in church functions, and they've been in church for many, many years, but without that relationship, there's no transformation of your heart, which ultimately means there's there's no transformed behavior. So I don't think we need more religion. I think we need more relationship. Okay. What song in your mind, not necessarily your song, any song, is closest to God, is most godlike? do you think? Um, I don't know that there is one. I don't really... That's a tough question for me to answer because I'm a, a songwriter, a musician, and each one of them puts me to a different place, different space at different times that are needed and necessary. So I can't really say that I have a song that does that. There are many songs. Great is our faithfulness, the hymns, um, I Need Thee Every Hour, um, It Is Well, then there are my songs, I Need You Now, God Is Able, Dear God, you know, there's so many different songs that put me in a different space, a different place, in and with God, whether it's time for celebration, whether it's time for 
just acknowledging God in, in, in joy and happiness, or if it's a somber time or a, a time of desperation. I think there are song, different songs for different situations. Great. Smokey, what else? What else uh, did you want to talk about? Anything else you wanted to mention? No, that, the book was the, the, the real premise and, and, and um, call for me wanting to do this even now because, of course, I want people to go out and purchase the book and support the, the cause. But more importantly, this to me was more than just, it wasn't like I needed something else to do. I mean, with everything I got on my plate, I really didn't need another job or another task. But I really felt very compelled and very strongly compelled that this book can really benefit some people and really help them to know who they are, to, to understand where they are, but more important, to navigate that and be fruitful and, and, and have an abundant life. I think we miss out on so much simply because we just don't know how to obtain it. So I really hope that people will go get the book. That was preacher and gospel musician Smokey Norfolk on Face to Faith, a regular podcast and column brought to you by the Chicago Sun-Times. I am Bob Hergeth of the Sun-Times. Think about subscribing to us on iTunes and please leave a comment. This podcast was edited. Thanks for listening. We leave you with another song from Smokey Norfolk. But I held on.